Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 97. We kick off with Henry Francis Finn, the trader who'd made his home in Port Natal and was part of a group of Englishmen who'd fought with Shaka against Sikunyani of the Ndwanwe. By 1826, Finn had been living basically as a Zulu at Impendweni near the Mbokodwe stream, which is close to Isipingo, south of Durban. Last week I explained how Shaka had donated three herds of cattle to Finn so he could set up his important umuzi. One of the herds was payment for helping defeat the Ndwanwe. Finn by now had been given a Zulu name, Mbuyazi, which means long-tailed finch, a bird of the bay. One of his praise songs was all about the finch, a fiscal shrike, which is particularly vicious in how it hunts by impaling insects on thorns. Finn was Shaka's favorite mercenary, a killer, and one of the few that Shaka allowed to kill people without his direct permission. Later, Finn's descendants would become known as Izinkumbi, the locusts. By 1826, Finn had four, possibly five, Zulu wives. We don't know their names because they were never passed down in the usual Zulu oral tradition, not even his great wife. But we do know quite a bit about his children. A son called Mpatwa was born while Finn was off fighting the Ndwandwe, so he was conceived around December 1825. That was a few months after Finn's umuzi had been set up. He adopted the Zulu customs of living and would send for one of his wives every night who'd come to his hut at nightfall. Only poor men would creep around at dusk to visit their wives. Finn had thrown off all pretenses of living like a European, unlike some of the other traders such as Maclean, the youngster, or Farewell. The latter had built a wooden house in the colonial tradition, but Finn followed the rule when in Rome do as the Romans do and discovered that living in this land of the Zulu was very much to his liking. And he wasn't alone. Also developing his Zulu ways was Henry Ogle, who had arrived at Port Natal and was trading with Shaka. Ogle's Zulu name was Watlo, and he also built three Umizi. They were so close that one of his sons was actually named after Shaka. The Zulu king regarded Ogle as his Isitata Sazendlini, the poor one of the house, a little brother. Another was John Kane, whose name was Jana, and built an umuzi called Isitlengeni on the bluff in Durban, and he also had many Zulu wives, as well as a potent but small regiment. While Farewell dressed in his 19th century trousers, Kane, Finn and Ogle often wore Zulu loinskins and mucha or beshu, as some call it. Farewell was already married, and his English wife was to make her appearance soon. Farewell had built his little wooden home where the courthouse in Durban is today. Durban, of course, has been renamed as Tegweni, but we'll get to both names. Right now, it's still Port Natal. All of these white traders were respected, and local people began to pass on stories about their lives. They were being incorporated into Zulu life. They decided to integrate. That was going to backfire for some later when Shaka was assassinated. They were so deeply involved in Zulu politics that they were also in danger of being murdered. So by 1826, Shaka was watching these traders with their guns and ships very carefully. In the same year, the Zulu king decided to move his entire main umuzi closer to Port Natal, building his new residency on the site of an umuzi long abandoned by the Trele chieftain Zibanlela. It was called... Kwa 
which was renamed as Stanga a little later, then renamed again recently as Kwadukuzo. Here in South Africa, we tend to play musical chairs with names. So Shaka's new great place was based on the summit of a rounded hill overlooking other smaller imizi scattered about heading towards the Tugela and Mvoti rivers. Shaka had now shifted to within 80 kilometers of Port Natal. Oral tradition explains that the homestead was so vast, the back was called Fasimba and the front Kwadukuza, and later the building housing the magistrate of Stanga was built on this spot. So Shaka built this new umuzi with the help from Magai San Melapi, he of the Tele people. And as part of the process, Shaka composed a new song which included these lines. I am not a gatekeeper such as is selected by kraal owners. I am a great warrior there in the Zulu country. I am foremost in the place of headrings. So why did he move? Some say it was to avoid being attacked by the rest of peoples around Delagoa Bay. Others that he wanted to get closer to Finn and Farewell. There's one theory that the Zulu homestead was ravaging the forests. Remember, there must have been thousands of people living alongside Shaka and firewood was running low while grazing was also suffering from the tens of thousands of head of cattle. He was also aware that the European traders had been decimating the elephant population and wanted to control their access to ivory. But once he moved to Kwarakuza, he didn't travel much and his warriors were quite static, at least at first. We know that the move was in phases, with Finn saying it was completed in 1827 and Nathaniel Isaacs writing that it started in October 1826. Of course, there are other darker oral traditions that Shaka was terrified of cats, as many traditional Zulus are, and called his old site near Ulundi the country of cats of Umpaka. These animals, like in Western tradition, are linked to witches. They are of the night, like owls. They are the Umtakati, a familiar of the dark side. These Umpaka around Kwabulawa were sent to haunt him, so he took off south to avoid the cats. This is not a small thing, and those who know traditional South African culture are fully aware of the importance of avoiding the familiars of the witches. There is an evil in the world, goes this point of view. Abatagati is the dark power which seeks harm and destruction, Satan by another name, so to speak, and manifests evil through people. And many people, the Abatagati, manipulate this darkness, particularly through Umiti, the basic things around us which are imbued with evil spirits by these Abatagat. Shaka was afraid of being bewitched, although he often poo-pooed those who overplayed their fears of the dark side. This didn't mean he didn't believe in the dark side, but he had to show courage always. There's another reason why he left. He was growing more concerned about the role that his brothers, including Dingan, were playing, and wanted to move away from them. As you'll hear, he had good reason to sense they were up to no good. The recent attempt on his life, some say, had been linked to Dingan. Shaka also knew something else. Back in Port Natal, the traders, including James Saunders King, were building a large 42-ton sailing boat. They were hammering and cutting and slicing and filing away, adzing the trees of the forest, trying to replace the ship Mary that had sunk on the notorious sandbar. In December 1825, the first mate, by the name of John Norton, had slipped away with the surviving longboat and had been roundly condemned as a coward. King had begun to build this much larger ship, and Shaka was being kept abreast of the ship building. There's a story that King tried to hide the idea from Shaka, which is a bit silly. 
All the way through 1826 and into 1827, the builders toiled on this boat, which of course was going to be named the Shaka, with a C. King wrote later that he was only doing this to keep Shaka happy. As the vessel sailed out of Port Natal, he would immediately rename it the Elizabeth and Susan. Tools were sent for, and in April the Helicon arrived, then the schooner Anne in October, with James King, who'd headed back to collect more material, and joining him on board was Francis Farewell's wife, Elizabeth, looking for her long-missing husband. There was quite a bit of moving around the coasts at this point. Vessels were beginning to sail regularly between Port Elizabeth, Cape Town, Delagoa Bay, and now Port Natal. It was soon after Mrs. Farewell arrived that Mr. Farewell got into a serious altercation with King. They refused to see each other, so when Sharka sent a messenger calling for them to visit, the two feuding traders sent Nathaniel Isaacs instead. This was the lad's fourth trip to Sharka, and it only took a couple of days to trek to Kwadukuza. Isaacs took presents of beads, ostrich feathers, brass and knives, as well as a kozatin called Nasupongo. Sharka appreciated the brass crown, sniffed the feathers, nodded about the beads, greeted Nasupongo, and was apparently in good spirits. He had a plan, and was eyeing events in the north, and simultaneously eyeing the guns the Europeans carried. By now, the Zulu king had embedded his spies in Port Natal, and was taking direct action against the ivory trading going on. Isaacs had made a trip to the Imkizes territory along the Tugela, shooting hippo and elephant. Then he immediately trekked off up the coast to Umlalazi River mouth with King. This is where the modern town of Umtunzini is, by the way. Finn had also been making merry with his muskets along the same river and had killed a large number of hippo, harvesting at least 700 pounds of hippo teeth. These traders had grand plans. They wanted to build more extensive networks with Mauritius, or Ile-de-France, as it was known then, Madagascar, as well as the Cape. Sharka heard about all the shooting and the fact that Finn and Isaacs had mounted the Union Jack on a sand dune above the Umlalazi River and declared it British territory. They claimed later that Sharka had granted them permission to own this land, that he had verbally agreed to another land grant. That was an outright lie. There was no land grant from Sharka. All they told the Zulu king when he asked what they'd been doing was that they were surveying the mouth of the river, the Umlalazi, for possible future harbour development. Finn then tried to explain to Shaka what was going on between King and Farewell. Apparently, it involved money, he said. Shaka was mystified by these petty jealousies and envies. These two European egos perplexed him. Sort it out, was his attitude. Fight it out, put up or shut up. The Zulu king was monitoring the English very closely. He knew that they were here to stay, and he also knew they represented an existential threat, so he kept the snake's head where he could see it. It was around now that two of Farewell's koi koi workers called Michael and John got him in very deep trouble. The sailors who arrived on their coastal jaunts were hard men, and then Michael and John moved from drunken brawls to something far more serious. They held up the wife of one of the local chieftains with a firearm and raped her. Sharka ordered the settlers to Kwadukuza to face the music. Farewell stayed away, but Isaacs took the responsibility, along with King, of facing the wrath of Sharka. He threatened to kill all the traders, but relented after John Kane arrived to grovel on behalf of Farewell. 
Shaka, though, had a plan to make them pay for Michael and John's transgressions. They owed him one, and so he ordered the traders to join an impi that was marching on the Mlocha people. They were part of the Kumalo clan, remember Mzilagatsi? While the latter was far, far away on the highfield, some of the Kumalo continued to cause Shaka grief. The Beji were also going to be attacked, but the main target were the Mlocha. They raided the people up the Tugela Valley, then turned to Ngomi, which is east of where Freyheit is today. It was apparently a rather sketchy affair, with neither side fighting with any conviction, until Isaacs was pierced by a spear thrown by the Beje, which hit him in the buttocks. Zulu oral tradition recounts this in great detail. So does Isaacs. When the MP, along with the mercenaries, arrived back at Kwadukuza, Shaka teased Isaacs and said that technically he should be executed. If you remember, any Zulu warrior who was wounded in the back was regarded as a coward and killed. Instead, Shaka gave Isaacs about a dozen heifers as thanks for his mercenary support and also allowed the traders to keep all the women they had seized during the raids. Later, Isaacs was to call these women refugees. We think they were sold as slaves, or at least kept as concubines. The thing to keep in mind, folks, is that Shark at this point did not control the territory south of the harbour of Port Natal with any conviction. It was through the traders that he became more interested in the area around the Imzumkula River. His last raid there four years earlier had been an unmitigated disaster, the Melon War as it was known. His men had been roundly defeated and many had starved to death on their long trek home. Shaka never controlled this territory. He barely controlled the clans along the Mgani River, after all. By now, the Zulu king was spending time at the ocean side. He loved making his way from Kwadukuza down to sit on the dunes, watching the waves, listening to the sound of the sea. As the sun slipped into the west, he would lope home up the hill to Kwadukuza with his fat councillors staggering after him. Shaka now began to show signs of stress and that was going to worsen quite quickly when his mother Nandi died. She fell ill in 1827 and then eventually died at her umuzi in Yakumubi near modern-day Ishohe on the old Mpangeni road. All accounts point to dysentery, and that is not a surprise. Stomach bugs were very common amongst the Zulu and the traders who visited. There was very little hygiene practiced. There were no toilets. People would just wander off into the bush designated as the area to do the business, and squat there. Even the king would wander off into the nearby felt to a selected area and defecate straight onto the surface. There was no long drop, no running water. You can imagine the effect of having a few thousand people living in some of these umizis and the stench of the toilet area, and so diarrhea and stomach bugs prevailed. Nandi was eventually to die in October 1827. Shaka mourned, But little did he know his own death was less than a year away. We'll come back to what happened there next episode. Right now, let's swing to the northwest. Because our old friend, who was actually still quite young, by the name of Mzilikatsi of the Kamalo, had been a very, very busy young man. The remnants of Sikunyani's and Dwandwe, shattered by Shaka, joined up with him in the area around the upper reaches of the Val River by the end of 1826. The erosion of power of the Buruchi people was taking place. Mzilikatsi was also incorporating refugees from the Tswana and Sutu chiefdoms as the area to the south and west of the Vaal became more unstable. 
The Pedi had also been defeated earlier by Zwedes and Wanwe, and now Mzilikatsi was busy taking advantage of their defeat to raid their old stomping ground. The Komalo people had become an agglomeration of their original clan from Zululand, and the Tswana now called them the Matabele. Nguni speakers called them the Ama Indibele, which is what they called themselves. Ama Indibele means the marauders. They were indeed Ama Indibele. After 1826, Mzilikatsi's power grew exponentially. He managed to raid all the way north to where the Vendor were, based in the Sotpansberg. In the northeast, groups like the Maroteng, Ama and Zudza, and Balobeng survived his onslaught because they could take refuge in the foothills of the Drakensberg escarpment. The Ama and Debele were fearsome and terrifying. They overran Sepetluani and his people, then headed even further west all the way to the Mariko River where they ransacked Molotsani's villages. Molotsani managed to escape along with survivors, heading south towards the Orange River, bringing the stories of carnage with him. Mzalikazi then turned southeast and hammered Matawani and his people living along the Kalatan Valley. As I said earlier, Mzilikazi really deserves the historical treatment that Shaka has received, and we haven't even got to the most meaty part of this Kumalo chief's story. After all the raiding, Mzilikazi was looking for a really beautiful and well-watered part of the world, and his eyes alighted on the northern slopes of the Mahalisberg Mountains, near where Pretoria is today. It was 1827, and the people of the southern Botswana were going to be his new target. He immediately subdued the Buhuruchi clans there. They paid tribute to this fearsome marauding warlord. Word began to filter through to the Orange River about these Matabili, these Amandabeli, and the Griqua and the Busters and the Kora leader Jan Blum, who we met many episodes ago, thought it would be a good time to exploit the banditry going on. More about them a little later in the series. The Khoi and mixed-race workers who the colonists were relying on had been filtering out of the Cape for generations. The arrival of the missionaries was a real threat to the colonists, as the mission stations became a beacon for many of these former indentured laborers. It was freedom beckoning. The missionaries' point of view was that the Khoi and the Amatkos and other black people were equals of the whites. This did not go down well at all with the Trek Boers nor the English settlers. They didn't regard these laborers as consumers. They were just part of the production chain, which was largely export-driven. They were seen as virtual slaves, unequal people of the felt, doomed by some kind of biblical twist to work the land as laborers, to be drawers of water and hewers of wood. It was clear that the emancipation of the slaves was coming. In England, the post-Napoleonic war era had economic challenges that had pushed the emancipation question into the background. But once the younger politicians such as George Canning were ushered into political power, the writing was on the wall. Just as an interesting aside, Canning became Prime Minister in April 1827. He died in August after 119 days in office and was the shortest-serving Prime Minister in British history until Liz Truss and her political pantomime in 2022. So back in the Cape, the 1820 settlers had been forbidden from owning slaves, a rule which they resented as a slur on their character, bizarrely enough. This odious tradition was proving hard to break. When the British government invited 19 slave-owning colonies from the West Indies, Mauritius and the Cape to propose a way to improve conditions for slaves, 
Members of the Jamaica Assembly threatened to secede. The idea of emancipation was shelved once more. But by 1827, Graaf Reinet was a big town of 300 well-built houses. Port Elizabeth had 1,200 inhabitants and two churches. Grahamstown was even bigger. 3,700 English and Dutch speakers lived in the city of Saints. It had four churches and a newspaper, Nochau. Things were developing fast in Southern Africa. Next episode, we'll hear about Sharker's response to his mother's death and how American whalers' plans to establish themselves at Port Natal alarmed the English traders there. Just a quick note about fellow podcaster Dan Manwaring. History fans, have a listen to Fascinating People, Fascinating Places. It's a podcast featuring discussions with experts on topics including the Dahomey Amazons, Songhai Empire, the Anzacs, and even interviews with NASA astronauts. That's Fascinating People, Fascinating Places on Apple and Spotify. And please rate this podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I've also managed to crack the nod. Thanks, Elon, on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.